0: You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation.
1: Hello, I am Mark Ponhuis. and I am
0: Leo Stevens. Welcome to the brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Mark. What have you got for us today?
1: G'day, Leo. Today I want to talk about the University Commercialization Unit. So, the main function of a university is to provide teaching and training and conduct research. In some cases, academic research can lead to the development of intellectual property. And the intellectual property at universities is generally managed by a commercialization unit who then seeks to find a suitable solution to translate IP into income for the university. One interesting aspect is that when research is done by staff, visitors and students, leads to IP, that the students and visitors will then own their share of the IP, but staff members generally do not. The main function of a commercialization unit is to manage engagement with industry. And this includes negotiation of the terms of commercial research, where industry pays and where industry generally owns all newly created IP, or government-supported industry research, where industry contributes and shares IP ownership with the university, as well as facilitating the commercialization of university IP, such as spinning out companies. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of a university commercialization unit.
0: Right, so I've kind of heard there's two different categories of people under a university. There's the students and visitors who are kind of working under their own steam. They're not being paid, so they own the IP they generate. And the staff who are being paid, their IP is owned by the university. But there, there would be a lot of crossover between these two groups. A lot of the time the uh, students will be working under a staff member, or visitors will be working with a staff member. How do you want to pick those dual relationships where a program has probably been contributed to by multiple individuals?
1: So first of all, a lot of students these days are paid. So they either get a grant, they get a stipend from a government research contract that the university holds, Visitors, by rule, are not paid. And the way most universities deal with IP is that upon entry of a, u- of a student to the university, so before they start doing any research or are enrolled, they are given the option to sign their IP away. And in some cases, academic researchers may stipulate that they will only hire a particular student for a particular research project if they actually agree to sign their IP over to the university.
0: So essentially volunteering themselves into the same situation that the staff members are in.
1: Correct. And that could actually be a deal breaker in terms of actually being able to work on that project. So it might be a requirement if you want to work on this project, you have to sign your IP away. Right. So,
0: I mean, once the university owns the IP for this project, what does it do with it? Because university isn't really in the business of running startups. So obviously it needs somebody to take this forward. What would be the university's approach to trying to make the most out of its IP?
1: Well, not everything leads to IP and not everything is, is turned into IP. I would say the majority of research projects do not lead to IP that gets registered. It just leads to research that is published.
0: And, and that is important because once it is published, it's in the public domain and it's no longer registerable. So even if it was commercially relevant, it it kind of forgoes the opportunity to profit from it.
1: That's correct, yeah. But a lot of universities are now encouraging but not incentivizing their staff members to look for commercializable research.
0: Encouraging but not incentivizing. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, let's say if I'm a university researcher and I develop IP that leads to a company, it has no impact on my pay. I don't get a bonus for doing it.
0: Right, and I guess spending your time developing that further is detracting from time you could be spent on the things that are affecting your pay.
1: Exactly. So there's not really an incentive as a university researcher to chase the commercialization, which is why that sometimes if a university researcher comes across research that they've conducted that may lead to IP, that they then work with a commercialization unit to hold off publicizing this until the commercialization unit has been able to give them advice on how to proceed. And then a researcher can make a, a decision on whether they think that's worthwhile for themselves.
0: All right, well, I think we've got a brief overview of what a commercialization unit is for, at least, but I don't think we can cover all the details in the no, time No, we should we move have. on. We should move on. So the business topic for today is the cap table, uh, also known as a capitalization table. So in simple terms, a cap table is a breakdown of who owns a business, often showing possible future scenarios of ownership based on upcoming investments or share issues. A very simple example of a cap table would be for a sole investor who is the first coming into a new startup. In this case, the founders would currently control 100% of all equity and the new investor might gain up to 30% ownership based on their new investment, meaning the company post-investment would have a 70-30 split of equity between the founders and the new investor. Where cap tables can become much more complicated is in later investment rounds where there might be numerous investors involved, where they might each be considering different amounts of investment, or where share creation events like employee stock options or the conversion of capital notes might be expected to shift the balance of ownership even after this investment round is completed. No matter the complexity, the cap table is an extremely important piece of information for anyone investing in an early stage business. Viewing and understanding the cap table is a critical part of due diligence. So both investors and entrepreneurs should be familiar with how they work and ensure that any deals are based on an up-to-date cap table.
1: So is a cap table a publicly available document?
0: No, almost no documents around a early stage company are public, but as part of the investment process, you are allowed into the deal room, someone they call it, where these documents are available. But essentially you, you don't see that until you've s- formed up some relationship where you are in a non-disclosure agreement and then you get to see the kind of inner workings of the company.
1: So cap tables would never appear in an annual report.
0: A lot of startups don't write annual reports.
1: Well, let's say larger companies? For a larger
0: company, yeah, absolutely. For a a company that's on the stock exchange, that is a public company, they have to maintain a register of shares and large shareholdings, I think 5% is the cutoff. So if you own more than 5% of the company, then it's publicly available information, how much you own. It's also publicly available information, what the directors of that company own.
1: So... I imagine if you're a startup company, your cap table is the size of an envelope.
0: Yes, generally, if you're, if you're a very early stage startup company, it would be very small. But, you know, for someone who's going to a seed round or a Series A, Series B venture capital round, you, you can start to have complex cap tables. And ones that have multiple scenarios based on whether employee share options are delivered, whether they best, you could have what are called capital notes, which is a form of debt that has the option to convert to equity. If they convert, that can change the situation. So, it can it can lead to a cap table which has a lot of different prospective scenarios of ownership into the future. And so that becomes quite difficult to unpick, but still very 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 important for a new investor to unpick it because you can be in a situation where you think you've bought five percent of a company, and all of a sudden it's only two or three because some other bits of equity have been issued that you weren't aware of.
1: So what would a cap table for Atlassian look like? (laughs) Well,
0: Atlassian is now a public company, so they would have a share register and there would be probably thousands of individuals on that share register, maybe tens of thousands, um, and they would have share option programs for their employees, so there'd be new shares being issued pretty regularly based on how directors and how employees were performing. Um, It's basically in a constant state of flux for a company that is public, and it's changing, you know, not even daily, but minute by minute for a public company because the shares can trade hands at any time.
1: So how, how do you keep track of that?
0: There are you know, really large automated share registries that manage that process once you are a large publicly traded company. Uh, it's, it's almost entirely digital these days.
1: So if you then go to a shareholders meeting and I'm, I'm mindful of time, that could change minute by minute basis, right?
0: At a shareholders' meeting, there is a point in time at which you're like you're designated as owning a percentage of that company. And it would be you know, four weeks out from the, the shareholders' meeting. They look at the ownership at that time, and that's how your voting rights carry forward. So there would be a specific point in time when you get your voting rights for the shareholders' meeting.
1: Okay, thank you. That's probably all we have time for. See you next week.
0: See you next week.